Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers. We are on our last lesson. It's hard to believe it's been a year since we started this journey. And we're going to wrap it up here with Numbers chapter 36, the end of the beginning. Now, you might say, why call it the end of the beginning? Well, have you ever read a trilogy? Or maybe you've watched a trilogy uh, and you get to the end of a second, the second book or the second movie and you watch this and you're like, did I just read a sequel? Or is this a prequel? Is this coming something that's coming before or something that's wrapped up? You watch the movie and you're sort of like, did I just waste two hours of my life? What is going on? You're trying to figure it all out. And then when you finally get to the third, the third act or the third movie or the third book, everything starts to come together and you're like, oh, now it makes sense. Well, when we get to the book of Numbers, it's sort of a second book. It's sort of that, that sequel, and yet it's a prequel. And when we end the book of Numbers, as Moses ends it, it may come across very anticlimactic. Like almost, you're like, why didn't we end this a few chapters ago with, you know, the, the winning of the victory against the Midianites? And yes, we end on a high, and that's what we're sort of used to. But I guess we should sort of expect that a book that begins differently is going to end differently. I mean, we started out with a bunch of guys counting each other and getting ready for, for battle. And now we're going to end with, you know, some, some men asking questions about these daughters who are going to get married and it sort of just ends. And you can look and go, this seems a little bit different. It's, think of it like a second book. Here, here's what I mean. Genesis, it shows us how God chose his people how he promised them a land, and then how those people ended up in bondage outside of the land. And then Exodus and Numbers sort of go together. Exodus is about how God redeemed those people from that bondage and then established them as a covenant people at Mount Sinai. And he makes a law and commitments to them. And he's leading them, begins to lead them toward the land of promise. And continuing with that is the book of Numbers, where it picks up on that journey to the promised land, only to have the nation wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because of their unbelief. And you, you sort of get this, this first act where Genesis gets them into bondage and they're sort of left. And you're like, oh no, what's going to happen? And Exodus and Numbers are going to get them out of there and heading toward this promised land only to find themselves spiraling. And you end this book with them still not into this promised land. Then, you know, as you look, Joshua is going to come along and sort of complete the story. Joshua is that, that third book in the trilogy that, that completes the whole overall picture of how they got into the land and how they conquered the land. And I always look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy sort of as those, if you're thinking like a, a movie or a book, there are those long monologues that you get in the middle of the movie where you're like, oh, now I understand why people are doing what they're doing and how they're, why they're acting. They're, they're the laws. They're the established foundational truths that, that occur. And if you sort of think of the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua in that, in that sense, numbers makes, numbers makes good sense as to why it does what it does, why it's placed where it's placed. It's that, think of it like that prequel sequel. It finishes the story of Genesis and Exodus and yet it's, it's setting the stage for what's to come. Something, something great is coming. One, one author that I was reading wrote about his love for mountain climbing and hiking through the hills. 
And he said his favorite, his favorite thing to do when he's hiking is to not so much when he's getting to the peak and, and at the peak. He said he enjoys having that accomplishment. But he said he loves to walk the ridge or the ridge line of the mountains. And he said he loves to do that because he said it's, it's not the peak and yet it's not the parking lot. He said it gives me the opportunity to, to look back where I've come from and yet look forward to where I'm going. And he compared that to the book of Numbers, and I think it's a very good perspective, especially Numbers 36. As we come to the end here, and what seems like a very out-of-place passage helps us to look back at what has been done and yet look forward to what is coming. Moses is going to conclude the book by looking at what has preceded. And then he's going to invite us to look forward to what is coming. This chapter, chapter 36, it's more than just an appendix. Someone said, well, they sort of had to, had to address an issue from earlier on, so Moses just slaps it on at the end. Because, you know, in Numbers 27, we have this information that we're going to get to here in a second. And it's just simply supplemental material to that, that uh, issue in Numbers chapter 27. Moses is going to really, what he's doing, walk us down the ridgeline, leading us to a theological conclusion for the book of Numbers. He's going to bring us to this point that says, hey, there's something important that happens here with this question. And really, it sort of sums up all that's happened in the book of Numbers. So let's, let's work on getting to that point. What, what is being talked about in the passage? Notice in verse number one, it says, And the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, and the families of the sons of Joseph came near and spake before Moses and before the princes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And you look and you're like, whew, mouthful. Okay, so what is, what is happening? These chief fathers from the families of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, all right, so now we have this lineage of, of people, and they're going to come to Moses, and they're going to ask a question. Now, we know that if you go back to Numbers chapter 26, and you read through the lineage when it was given, and they, they were talking there, that these individuals, it ends up being, they are the cousins of the daughters of Zelophehad. In, uh, verse, in uh, verse 33, it talks about the in Zelophehad, who was one of the sons of Machir, which is one of the sons of Manasseh, who is one of the sons of Joseph. So this is the lineage. These daughters of Zelophehad, these are cousins to the people who are coming in Numbers chapter 36. They're coming with a question. And so these female heiresses that we find here in Numbers 27 and then again in Numbers 36, they're the ones who are going to be at the center of this question that is going to arise. So they ask, they're going to ask this question. Now, Numbers 27, if you remember back to when we studied that, it established a change in the laws of inheritance. What, what used to be uh, something where, uh, and, and we're not going to take time to go through all of that. Uh, you can go back and, and check it out. But it used to be, the idea was that only the men had the right, the sons had the right to inherit the land and then pass it down, and it would continually pass down through the, the males, the, the sons in the family. But 
we learn from Numbers 27, if there is no son to inherit a father's land, then it would be able to be passed to the daughters. Remember the daughters of Zelophehad came and said, our father was a good man. He died in the wilderness, not with the sons of Korah. He wasn't a rebellious. He just died that natural death that was going to be for everybody in that first generation. And is it fair, is it right for our father to then go through and because he has no sons to not receive an inheritance in the land of promise? Should his legacy be wiped out? And God looks at Moses, they say no. And so they say the daughters of Zelophehad can now inherit. And so the females who are in this lineage, that when there's no son, that it will be passed down. And if there's no daughter, then it will be passed down to the nearest kinsman. So that was established. But traditionally, it's important to remember that the land stayed, and I'll say this again, stayed with the husband and his tribe. That was all part of the inheritance laws of Numbers chapter 27 that was uh, modified because of the situation with the daughters of Zelophehad. So the land being inherited now, as we talk about it, and this question arises, meant that the land was being divided. Numbers 34 and 35 point out that the land was going to be divided. Remember? And how they did that. It was going to be done proportionately. The larger tribes were going to get more land. That God was going to do this by the casting of lots. So there was a providential oversight as to who would get what. And then there were, it was going to be secured by godly men. It was going to be protected. And they were going to help subdivide the bigger portions of land down into the other, other families. So the land was going to be divided. But all of this is yet to come. They're not in the land. So why all of a sudden is this a big issue for these, these children of Gilead? Why, why, why are they coming to Moses and asking this question? So, well, part of it is understanding what the children of Gilead meant. Gilead was a region, and it was a region that as we look at, Numbers 27, if you remember, as we talked about the daughters of Zelophehad, that was theoretical. It wasn't, it wasn't come to fruition yet. They weren't in the land. So it says, okay, if this, if this situation, like in this case happens, the daughters are allowed to inherit. Well, Numbers 32, and which is the, the, the uh, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh want to settle on the Transjordan side, if you remember there, but uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, flip over to Deuteronomy 3. It's like a couple of pages to your right. Deuteronomy chapter 3, if you look in verses 12 to 15, you're going to get an interesting oversight where it talks about uh, verse 13, the rest of Gilead and Bashan and the kingdom of Og. Remember, Og is that giant on the Transjordan side, not on the Promised Land side, but the other side of the Jordan. Uh, took all the country of Agob to the coast of uh, Jeshuri and goes on. And then he says, Moses says, verse 15, I gave Gilead unto Machir. So Gilead was a region on the Transjordan side. It was given to Machir. Machir is going to be the daughter or the father of Zelophehad, which means that the, the daughters of Zelophehad's inheritance is going to be on this Transjordan side. So now all of a sudden, if you remember, they're establishing land over on the Transjordan side because the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh have been told by Moses, get everything ready because you're going to send your warriors into battle with us into the land of promise to, to do the conquest. 
So now these daughters of Zelophehad are receiving their inheritance. So it's no longer theoretical. Now it's practical. Now it's happening. And so the issue is raised because it's a real and present issue on the Transjordan side. Some of the inheritance has been received. So now as they look and they're saying, wait, we're, we're on this Transjordan side and we have this inheritance and the daughters of Zelophehad have now received land, we see a potential concern. Now, I think as you look through the book of Numbers and as we've went through, there's a huge theme of inheritance running through the book. It starts in the beginning and it ends concerning with inheritance. We're moving to this land that we are going to inherit. And that's a, that's a great theme that God has an inheritance for his people. And we see that there. And that, so that drives this concern because the, the inheritance, remember, is providentially given to each tribe. God has given to these tribes their specific land, and they hold that precious. To this day, the Jews hold their land as precious. It is their land given to them by God. So what becomes the concern of these men from Gilead, the, the other part of Manasseh? Remember, it's traditionally passed down through the men, through the husband. So now you have this new perspective with the daughters. Group feared the integrity of the tribe's inheritance would be lost. Notice in verses 3 and 4, in in Numbers 36 there, you're going to see two words that that come up. Well, three in the King James. The word taken and the word put to or put unto in verses 3 and 4. They're mathematical terms. Taken means to be subtracted, put unto means to be added. In fact, if you have a different translation, it probably has subtracted or taken and added. So what are they looking at? Their question arises then and says, what happens if one of these daughters of Zelophehad marries somebody from another tribe? So all of a sudden, one of, you know, Milcah or Noah, one of the daughters, they, they start taking a fancy to the, this guy from Judah. And they're like, oh, well, I like him. He's got, you know, that long flowing, strong hair and he's strong and masculine. I think I want to marry a guy from Judah. Their question is then, who gets the land and what happens to the land? This is the land for Manasseh given to them by God. But if they marry a guy from Judah, doesn't the land then go through the husband? And so then wouldn't some of the land of Manasseh then be transferred to, hypothetically, the tribe of Judah? So they bring this this question to Moses and they they say this is a concern because then what happens then in the year of Jubilee? They bring that up in verse 4 where it talks about and when the Jubile or the Jubilee of the children of Israel shall be. The Jubilee was uh, every 50 years. Leviticus 25 talks about it. But every 50 years, the land that was purchased by somebody, I could purchase land from somebody maybe who was going through a hard time or poor and I could purchase that land but in the 50th year, after the, the seventh sabbatical year, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, I would then be required to return that land to the person who uh, had sold it to me. That went for indentured servants. They would be freed. This was all done as part of God's plan to remain and keep the land with its tribes, with its people, and to, to return it. Now, Jubilee, though, was about what was sold and not what was inherited. So when these men are looking at the year of Jubilee and they're looking at the land, they're saying, 
Moses, when the year of Jubilee comes, that land will not be returned to Manasseh. That land, because it was inherited and not sold, would stay with the other tribe. And so there would cause a problem because now we would have in the middle of Manasseh here these potential little tribes of other, other tribes. And this is our land that was given to us by God. So the land would be lost and it would never be reclaimed to our tribe. But this is the land that God has given to us. This is our providential plot. What are we to do? How is this supposed to happen? And so with any legislation, often there comes more legislation. We, we've played the game Clue with the, the teens for years and years, and it's been always fun. And every time, and I was reminded of it this past time when I, I filled in for Pastor John and gave the, gave the instructions, gave all the rules to Clue, and the same thing happens every single time we play it. I don't even get halfway through explaining the rules. Hands go up. But what about this? Could we do this? What about this? And what about, and then you finish it all up and any more questions. And then someone asks a question and then you give an answer. And then the next person says, well, if that's the case, can I do this? That's, that's what happens here with this situation. Numbers 27 was new legislation. And now they feel like there's been a loophole that they've discovered or a potential problem. And so now more legislation is going to be given because often when legislation is given, more legislation is necessary to clarify the previous legislation. So that's what Moses is going to do here. He's going to give a little bit of a, uh, a uh, perspective, an extra legislation, an addendum to the previous Numbers 27 and fill it out. And, and that's why some people said, well, it's just supplement, it's just appendix. But Moses places it here with, with intention. Now, what really amazes me is not so much that they have this concern and that they found this great legal loophole. It's how they approach the issue. Did you notice how the men came? They approached Moses with respect. Look in verse number one. It says, they came near, they spake before Moses. So the, and the wording there is to come with a submissive heart to come with a, an attitude of respect. When they came near, it was not a pompous, it was a, a humble coming to Moses. So they came with a respect uh, to Moses. They approached with great reverence to God's word. Notice in verse two, it says, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance to these daughters. Did you, catch the, did you catch what they're saying? They, they recognize that there was a command by God. They recognize that these laws were given by God and that Moses was upholding them. And they even call Moses, my Lord. They say, we know that, that our great God has given our master, our Lord, our Moses here. He, he's given, and you're just following through on what God has said. In fact, in this, in this passage, and I believe this is driving part of this point home from the book of Numbers, Seven times in these 13 verses, once every two verses, Moses uses the word command. The men use the word command or commandment or commanded. There's, there's, a, there's a thrust that's being made, and don't miss that, that these are the commands of God, that they are given to them by God. And they acknowledged 
they submitted to the authority. They're saying that, you know what, this is what God has said, and we understand it, but here, here is our question. What happens if they marry somebody outside the tribe? Who gets the land, and how do we go that? And they, they come with this attitude of reverence and submission. We want to know what God wants us to do. There's not this pomp and circumstance and rioting and looting. They, they, didn't, come, they didn't come in that way. When we walk the journey of life, we're tempted to give authority to other means of guidance. And here's what I mean by that. They could have come in and said, this is what we expect. This is what we want. And yet they come and say, God is the authority. He has established these commands. Moses, you're our, you're our human authority. We're coming to you with reverence and respect. We want the proper authority to give us guidance in our life for what to do. That ought to be our same attitude as we walk through. That's been part of the issue throughout the entire book of Numbers, where the children of Israel wanted their way. They, they did not trust God's providence and his protection. They wanted their belief system, not God's belief system. And they, they rebelled against his authority time and time again, whether it was God himself or Moses and Aaron. And there was the grumbling and the complaining. We need to seek the Lord's guidance in all the things of this world. Everything we go through, everything we face, we ought to be going and saying, what does God in his word, the authority of our life, the only rule for our faith and practice, what does that say we should be doing? What does God say we should be doing? We are to live under God's authority and that means living under his word. We must follow. And that's what these men were doing. Even though they were on the Transjordan side and people could say, well, they're not even living fully in the, they missed, you know, maybe God's full, complete blessing. Yet in that process, they're still wanting to come and to say, what is God's, what is God's word on this? So God is going to answer. Moses is going to answer on behalf of God in verses five to nine. We're going to see the command to the people that's going to happen here. Verse 5, and Moses commanded, there it is again, the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribes of Joseph have said well. Notice the basis of all these biblical commandments. Moses just doesn't say, here's what I'm telling you to do. He says, here's what I'm telling you to do based upon God based upon God's word. God is the basis for all biblical commandments. And when he says this is what we are to do, we are to follow because it's rooted in God and it's rooted in his ways and his nature. Moses identifies this argument to be valid. He says they've, they've spoken truly. They understand what all the laws that have gone before have, have led up to. And so we have this, this dilemma. So God's command concerning it is in verses six and seven. He looks in, in verse 6, Moses says, this is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. So is this only concerning the daughters of Zelophehad or is it going to be for all of Israel? Because it talks about here. We know if you look in verse 8, it actually gives a little bit more clarity. And every daughter that possesses an inheritance in the tribe of the children of Israel. So this, the command that God is going to give he says it's to be for any female heiress. Any, any lady who has inherited land and is now going to have the potential to marry, 
what does God say in the scope of the inheritance laws and keeping the, the tribe within intact? What does God lay out for them? God is going to command the people. Notice he says in verse 6, let them marry to whom they think is best. So that phrase that's used there is, is he's not prohibiting Jewish women from marrying outside of their tribe. That's not, that's not what God is doing here. He, Jewish women have the freedom to, to marry within the tribe of, or within the nation of Israel. They were able to marry outside of Judah, could go marry from Simeon, and Simeon ladies could marry from Gad, and it, it can be passed on back and forth. It allowed the daughters here to choose for themselves. They didn't, they didn't have the father, and it's not even saying that their mother was to be involved. It's very specific here that these ladies were to choose for themselves. The wording is very interesting. And literally, the word for let, let them choose who they think has the idea of literally um, in the eyes of them. Like as they look, they are to discern, they are to assess, they are to have the intuition and discernment to choose someone to marry appropriately. They're to look and to say, okay, who would be a, a suitable helpmate for me and me for them? They were to have input and opinion. This, we, sometimes I think we, we often think, well, they were just all, all marriages were just arranged in the Old Testament and everybody just had to go through a matchmaker. We get some of these skewed things. God says here that these, these ladies had the ability, had the discernment, had the wisdom had the knowledge to be able to make a good and wise and godly choice. And that's what they were to do. But there's more to it. God does give them a limitation, not a prohibition. He's not saying that they can't marry. He's looking and saying, there is a limitation to what you are to do when you are in this specific circumstance. He's not saying that all the the women of Israel... He's saying that the, <clears throat> the daughters, verse 8 again, that possess an inheritance. So a female who has inherited land because there are no sons, uh, and now they have received the, the inheritance, just like the daughters of Zelophehad. Verse 6 says what they're to do. Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. They are to marry within the tribe. So the daughters of Zelophehad are not to go out to the tribe of Judah or Simeon or Gad. They are to stay within the tribe of Manasseh and marry someone from the tribe of Manasseh. This is a marriage modification that's made here. The, the God says, here's, here's a limitation that I'm putting on for this specific circumstance, situation. It's a, it's a case law. It's a specific situation. They're still allowed to marry but they simply had to choose from their tribe. You know, God has done the same for us. This isn't uncommon. This isn't total, like just one shot happens and that's it. The same is true for us. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2? Very clearly lays out that each man is to have his own wife and each wife his own man. When it's talking in the marriage relationship, there is a male and a female that that comprise a biblical family. So God puts a limitation in our culture. We need to understand that. The biblical marriage is male and female. That's a limitation that God has placed. Another one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, 
We're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers where uh, someone who's saved and someone who's not saved because the yoke, they're going to be pulling in two different directions. You're going to have two commitments that are warring against each other because you're going to want to serve God and yet your spouse is not wanting to serve God. They're wanting to go in a different direction. And so Paul reminds us, okay, hey, Corinth, you're to marry male is to marry female, female to marry male. That's biblical marriage. And as well, the other limitation is you're supposed to be two believers that are there. We're bound to marry within our tribe or our clan or within Christ. So it's not, it's not a, a, something that is foreign even to us. At least it shouldn't be as biblical believers. We, are, we have limitations to who we are to marry. You can marry, but inside of those, those limitations... You can marry anybody you would like. But they have to be male, female. They have to be believers. And it's there. This passage is not. It's not a passage. Do not skew it and say, well, see, we're not supposed to marry across races or across nationalities or ethnicities. That's not what the passage is talking about because we've already dealt with that way back in Numbers 12 with Moses marrying an Ethiopian woman. And there was, a, there was already an interracial marriage there. That's not what this is saying. So don't skew and twist scripture to say, see, that's what it's saying. We're dealing with a specific situation here and God lays it out very clearly that if a female has inherited land, they're to marry within their tribe. There, there is a limitation. So is this like a, a primitive chauvinism where, well, the men can do whatever they want, but the, the women can't? No, it, it's not. It's designed by God to maintain the equity of the land inheritance, to keep the land within because of the, the way that it was structured for the inheritance. The decision pro, uh, prohibited the transference of land between tribes. Notice in verse 7, it says, so shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. Because he's saying that if she does marry, one of the daughters that Zelophe had does marry outside of the tribe, then inheritance law says that the land stays with the husband. And so then the land would transfer. And so he's saying, we're not going to transfer because this is the land that I have providentially given to my people of Manasseh or whatever tribe. So it must stay within. So God's not saying, oh, men are just greater than women. He's looking and saying, based upon all the other laws of the land, we're going to limit in this very small, small, small percentage. And we're going we're gonna to follow this, this practical law. Every male himself shall keep his inheritance, it says in verse 7. Verse 8, every female heiress that is to, to marry into the tribe, they're going to do that. Why? To keep the tribe in the tribe. And to notice in verse 8, the other reason they do that is to, so shall the wife be unto the family of the tribe of her father and the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his father's. They understood the importance of a legacy, an inheritance, a godly inheritance being passed down. Part of that blessing and inheritance to the children of Israel was their land inheritance. That was part of God's blessing to them. So if, if, the, if the female heiress moves outside of the tribe, then her children or the future, future children of Manasseh will lose out on part of the land blessing that God has established for them. So God says, we're not going to allow that. That's going to be the one limitation that's going to be there because inherited land is a gift from God that was specific, providentially given to them by God. It, it reminded me, our culture, 
we don't put a high value upon our tribal or ancestral land. I mean, I've moved, since I've been in Lebanon, I've moved four or five times. And each time I've had my own plot of land. It was mine. But then when I sold my land, it drove me nuts. When I went back to my old house that, I, that we sold, and looking at the gardens and everything that I had, you know, manicured and made sure it was really nice. And then I look and it's like, what did they do? They tore it down. They put up a, a sandbox in my old asparagus bed. And I'm like, what's going on? It, it wasn't, it's not my land. It's not my land anymore. I, I gave it up to them. I sold it to them. And it, it's not mine anymore. And I think that we don't have that. And I think in our culture, we've seen that. In fact, this is why you can look back and why so many of our forefathers didn't have a problem driving the Native Americans all over the country, the Trail of Tears and other, things, other features of it, because they saw the land as land, whereas the Natives saw that land as their ancestral right, their, their land that was given to them by the, the gods, by a deity. And so they held that, that land precious because it was their land. The same thing's true. I think that's why we still are going to perpetually have this crisis in the Middle East. Because the land that is promised to Israel is the land that God has given to them. It is their inheritance directly given to them by God. And so to look and to say, well, just take portions of it away, no big deal. That's why the Jews fight so hard for their land, because they look at these passages and they say, this is our land. They hold that ancestral land very precious. So we can't look back at Deuteronomy or Numbers 36 here and say, well, just get over it. It's not that big of a deal. It's just land. No, this was their tribal, their ancestral inheritance. This was their legacy and their blessing that they were to pass down. So it's a legitimate question. That's why we can look back and go, oh, whatever. But Moses and God both recognize that this is a, an, an issue that needs to be addressed. So if they're both noticing it, then maybe we need to take a step back and say, wait, okay, this was a, an important issue in that, in that day. So what's the response going to be of these women? How are these daughters going to respond to this command that is restrictive in nature? They were all happy with Numbers 27 when they got their land or had the right to inherit, but now with that inheritance, now there's some restrictions that God has placed on them. How are they going to respond? How are the other people going to respond? How will the, the future tribes and the future daughters of Israel respond to God's commands laid down and given to them that will have impact on their life, will have impact who they marry, will have impact on how they navigate, how they uh, walk through life? What's the response? We see the response as one of commitment. Verses 10, 11, 12, we see the commitment of these individuals. Even as the Lord commanded there's, there it is again. The, Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. These godly, faithful women that we saw in Numbers 27 demonstrate once again obedience. They say, we are going to do what Moses has told us because that is what God has told us to do. Not one or two of them just said, okay, but all five of them confidently believe God's promises. Notice verse 11, for Mala, Tirza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married unto their father's brother's sons. They married within the tribe. They kept the inheritance 
in the family. They followed through on what God had told them to do. And they trusted that following God's word was the best thing for their life. What an antithesis to the first generation. Moses is using these women as an as a antitype to that first generation. Looking and saying, God had the best for you and you chose to disobey, to walk in unbelief and not follow God's promises. But these women, they are what you are to be. Even in the most potentially restrictive and frustrating thing, you're telling me I can't marry who I want to marry. No, I'm saying you can within these parameters. They willingly, obediently followed. What, what a contrast to the first generation that is there. The result of their obedience is that they, they shared the blessing of a godly inheritance with their family. Verse 12, and they were married into the families of the sons of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of their fathers. Their next generations, the legacy, a godly inheritance and a godly legacy passed down is very important to God. And it should be to us and it was to them that they were willing to follow God's commands and be obedient. They face what I often call an Eve moment, or I, I've jokingly called it the Eve principle. How are, how are they going to do it? You, you can have everything within these parameters, Eve. Every, every tree, every fruit you can eat of except for this one. And yet, where do her eyes become fixed? on what she could not have. The daughters of Zelophehad faced this potential. You can marry whoever you want within the tribe. They could easily look and go, but I want someone from Reuben. I want someone from Gad or Judah or Simeon. And they faced this, but they're not the only ones. Don't we often face that God limits God places restrictions in our lives. And because we long for that which is off limits, we struggle. We struggle with God's goodness. We struggle with obedience to God's commands because we think our authority or the authority of, of people who are not believers have a better perspective, whether it's on marriage, whether it's on life choices, whether it's on what we do in just the practical every day. We, we know certain things are off limits and yet we choose them. We choose to go after them. We battle with the same Eve principle, the, the, the temptation to go after that which has been placed off limits. The daughters of Zelophehad said no. We're going to live within God's parameters. We're going to live within God's law and we're going to experience God's promises and blessings because we're going to follow God. We're going to walk after him. Though we could not park here or we could park here for a long time, the emphasis of this passage is not to be on the limitations that confront these women, but rather on the evident obedience to God's will through faithful living. That is what Moses is driving at in this passage. That when God gives a command, there is to be faithful following, evident obedience. 
to God's command. Think about that in the scope of the book of Numbers. You see, the entire book of Numbers, if they would simply follow and be obedient to God's plan, to God's will, even in the midst of obstacles, even in the midst of restrictions, even in the midst of limitations, if they would simply believe rather than practice unbelief, how much shorter would the book of Numbers been? We would have been out of the book of Numbers back in chapter 14. They'd have been going into the promised land and we'd be jumping right into the conquest of Joshua. But it's not there. Moses is driving a, a solid point home using this, the beautiful example of these strong, faithful women who in the midst of a limitation, restriction, and obstacles, they faithfully obeyed God and his commands. And so Moses takes that and gives a quick synopsis. God ends it with one verse, and it's just, it seems abrupt. Look at, look at verse 13. These are the commandments, there it is again, uh, and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses, so we know that's been the whole book, God tells Moses, Moses tells the people, unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. And then it's done. And we're like, okay, what's happening here? God reminds his people that they are on a pilgrimage and they are not home yet. Sounds very similar to us, doesn't it? This world's not our home. We're just passing through. We are strangers, we are aliens, we are sojourners in this land. Our pilgrimage is not done yet. He reminds them uh, that there, there are commandments which have been given. And these commandments are not only for this chapter. He's not just summing up the chapter in verse 36. He's summing up the entire book. He tells Israel, all of these commandments here, these are given to you by Moses from God. This is what God expects for faithful, obedient living. This is what God wants. These commands are rooted in God himself and have been passed down to the people by their faithful leader, Moses. And God ends the book on a forward-looking, open-ended note. You get to the end and you're like, okay, prequel or sequel? Did we just, did we just wrap up? Yes. We just wrapped up a whole, that whole Exodus journey is now, it's done. But we're not in the land yet. How do we know that? Look at, the, look at the geography that he gives at the very end. How does he end? He's given to the children of Israel. Where? In the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, near Jericho. He's like, this is where you're at right now, in the plains of Moab. You have this obstacle of faith that is there, the Jordan River, that you're going to, to go, and it is the, the last obstacle that you're going to have to, by faith, trust in God to cross over, to go into the promised land, Jericho. They could see Jericho from where they were at. They, they knew it was there. They could see into the promised land. This is where you're going. And then it ends. But for the children of Israel, it's not the end. You know where the, you know, you, you can see the armies forming. You can see Moses giving these last instructions, but we know some things have to change. Moses is going to have to die. Joshua is going to have to be put into leadership. There's going to be this entire book of Deuteronomy. It's the sermons of Moses that are going to be given to them. And it's going to be laid out. All this is going to happen, but it's going to happen rapidly. And guess what's going to happen? 
They're going to go into the promised land. It is this forward looking. It's walking that ridge line. We can look back and see all of where we've come from. And yet God is saying, look where you're going. What a great lesson for us. We look back over life. We look over this last year as we've journeyed through numbers. We've journeyed through COVID. We've journeyed through the ups and downs of life. And as difficult and as frustrating, as hard as some of that may have been, look where we're going. This is not our home. We are on a pilgrimage. We are, we are moving forward. Let's look, set our sights, our affections on things above. God's not done yet. Our life, this book, to be continued. There is more to it. We have not come to a final end. And like any good sequel prequel, there are some good lessons for us. We can look back through the book of Numbers. I believe we can see that future inheritance should drive present obedience. Because of where we're going, because of the promised land they're headed to, they should have been faithfully obeying all the way through because this is what God has provided. God has provided us a home in heaven and because of his love and his redemption and his salvation for us, we ought to be in this present world setting ourselves on things above not on things below. We ought to be obeying and sacrificing our lives to him. The quiet and, comfort, uh, quiet and confident affirmation of faith in God is necessary as we look forward to the future. These women show that in this passage, that we're trusting in God, that we know there's a great future. And that is our hope. Our hope in Jesus is that One day I will be resurrected. One day I will be raptured, whatever it is. But my home is in heaven one day with him. Following the commandments of the Lord faithfully is necessary along our pilgrimage. You can see that throughout. And when the children of Israel did not in the book of Numbers, there was chastisement. When they did, there was blessing. Faithful obedience of God's people to his instruction is a prerequisite to God's blessing in life. We want and desire God's blessing. The children of Israel desire God's blessing. Then by faith, they must obey God's word. You see that throughout the book of Numbers. We see it in this last chapter. This last chapter sums it all up and points back, but look, points forward. The fate of one's generation does not dictate the future of the next generation. This group of ladies representing the next generation. These men who came from the tribes of Gilead seeking with respect and reverence God's counsel, God's direction on on this issue, wanting God's command. They represent the best. They represent faithful following. And their, their fate was not determined by the fact that their forefathers chose unbelief. They chose belief. I think it's really interesting. It's a total side note, but you start the book with a, a generation of unbelief. You start the book with a group of men who are counting. You end the book with a group of ladies who are faithfully believing. It's just an interesting, and, and some have pointed out like the, the gender equality of Uh, the book of Numbers and God's covenant of his people, that he cared for men and women. It's an interesting side note, and I think it's interesting that you end this way. But again, 
the opposite picture of the previous generation. This new generation, as we've talked about in the second half of this book, they did things differently. They operated having learned from their history, learned from the past, learned from the mistakes and the sins of their fathers. And they did not allow that to dictate. They allowed themselves to submit themselves and to faithfully follow God. So as we look at the wilderness wanderings, as we look at the book of Numbers, if I was going to sum up this chapter and as well this book, how would we do it? What was Moses driving at in this, this last pointed statement? What was he trying to, to get us to comprehend and to understand both for the past and for the future? I believe it's this. To walk by faith is to walk by the word. The entire book of Numbers, it was either a walk of faith or a walk of unbelief. And it was directly based upon how the children of Israel walked in God's word. Faithfully following or denying, complaining, grumbling, unbelief toward God's word, toward God's leaders. We can look back and see that for numbers. And I believe we see that for our own pilgrimage as we walk the ridgeline of our life. We look back at what has happened in our life. We look forward to what is going to happen. And our walk of faith that we desire to have is going to be directly affected by how we walk in the word. Let us be people, men and women, who faithfully walk in the word of God. Father, I pray that you would help me, help those listening to walk according to your word. Lord, when we fail, we thank you for your mercy, and yet we long for your forgiveness. Help us to repent, help us to be right, and Lord, help us to love your word because in your word we see you. And we know that you are the basis of all your commands. So God, help us to love your word so that we learn to love you more and help us to follow according to your word in your ways. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day.